0: Jesus, we're not ashamed to say that we are weak. I know that flies against everything that I feel like I'm supposed to say. (laughs) I'm supposed to fake like I'm strong. I'm supposed to at least convince myself I'm strong because that's how I get by in this world. But when I know that you are the solid rock and that you are truly strong, man, there's no need to fake it anymore. Because we know that you're a God who not only is able to deliver, but you want to. You are willing. And we hear these words from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest, a savior, a God, a king who is unable to empathize, to understand our weakness. But we have one who was tempted in every way, just like we are, who went through all the same stuff. And more than we did. Yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Everybody say with confidence. Confidence. Let's say it with confidence. With confidence. confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So Jesus, we are not ashamed again of our weakness. For it is the very opportunity we have to come to you and to receive grace, mercy yet again from you. For you are not only the God who came and dwelled in our world and and conquered sin, death, and the grave. Clearly, you're able to deliver. But you're the God who did it all out of love. As to the glory of your grace, you are willing to deliver. And as the God who is both able and willing, we rest on you, our solid rock. May we step out of the sinking sand of our own works and own attempts to save ourselves. May we rest in you. And as we hear your word now, God, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that builds us up for your honor, for your glory, And for our greatest joy. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said. Amen. And you guys may have a seat. And a very happy good morning to all of you guys. It is great to see all your faces here this morning. Um, it, It is a privilege to be able to kick off again week two of going through this fascinating book of the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. But. Um, As people are getting settled here, let me me just start by asking this question. Who was the childhood hero when you were growing up? You You know, who who is that person that everybody, all your friends, you included, wanted to be like? Tom Brady. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I... It was kind of a rhetorical question, but I will take answers. <laughs> Honestly, I really appreciate it. For for me though, um, as a kid growing up in the 90s, the, the, the person I wanted all of my friends wanted to be like hands down was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. As an elementary and middle school kid, I had a hoop in my in my backyard. And I would go outside after school and no disrespect to Scottie Pippen, but in my mind I was always Jordan. Right? I I, like I can't tell you how many fadeaway shots I couldn't just shoot normal. Like I had to fade it back. I put a trampoline under my goal so that I could practice, like pretend like I was dunking from the free throw line. You know, that was the time, too, when those uh, Be Like Mike commercials were really big. You remember those Gatorade commercials where all the kids wanted to be like Michael Jordan? Because in our minds, like, he was the pinnacle of success. Not only did he win championships, but he had international fame, fortune, contracts, Gatorade, Nike, and all the others. And he was a star in the hit movie Space Jam. Space Jam. That's right. Like, forget this second one, guys. The the OG right here, Space Jam. He had it all, and I wanted to be just like him. But about a year ago, I ran across this documentary uh, called The Last Dance. Anybody seen that in here? Got a few people. Yeah, man, what a fascinating documentary. Um, Basically, it covers the rise. Uh, of the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s, specifically focused on Jordan. And without censoring much, it shows who Jordan, the person, was behind all of those championships. And I watched the series, and my reaction surprised me. Because I expected the series to raise my awe of Michael Jordan. But, But in reality, the more I watched it, I started to feel sad for him. Because he was arguably the greatest, most accomplished athlete of all time. But he was never satisfied. That despite all he gained, he never had enough. He always had to win the next bet. He had to chase the next high, get the next deal. And I thought, man, he had it all. But I feel for him. I feel for him. Well, if you're going to ask kids in the Old Testament days, the royal days of Israel, hey, kids, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Without a doubt, I'm pretty sure they would say, King Solomon, this is our guy. King Solomon, this guy had it all. Not only did he have the crown, but he had all the brains to go with it. Like foreign kings paid big money for his wisdom. And he was one of the wealthiest human beings to ever live. Like, like maybe Elon Musk scoot over a little bit. Like, like, this guy had about 25 tons of gold delivered to him every year. That was just annual income. And doesn't count all the other stuff. Like, 25 tons of gold is about, today, 1.1 billion dollars. He was a mega billionaire in his day. He built palaces and gardens that made people think they had entered the Garden of Eden. If you want like lifestyles of the rich and famous Bible version, read 1 Kings 10, which is just a full list of everything Solomon had. It's safe to say that folks back in the Bible days, they wanted to be like Solomon. They wanted what Solomon had. But just like the last dance gave me a different look on the person of Michael Jordan, Ecclesiastes causes us to look at the life of Solomon again, too, to see his humanity. You know, when you, when you read a lot of the Old Testament experts, most of them agree, at least at this point, that, that Solomon didn't likely write the book of Ecclesiastes. It was written by a teacher who played the part of Solomon. But Solomon was the world's most envied man. So the author of Ecclesiastes poses as him here. Not to trick us into thinking that he is him, but so that we can imagine the human side of Solomon also. And in doing so, Ecclesiastes puts the picture of the one person in front of us who has it all to make us ask. Or where does life really find its meaning? And what am I living for? And does it truly matter? So last week, we saw in chapter one how grabbing for fulfillment or our lasting legacy in this world is like grabbing at smoke. You guys remember that candle up here? Well, this week, We're going to be working through a much longer passage, one part at a time, asking where in the world do we find lasting satisfaction? And when we do go grabbing for it, why can't we seem to get a grip on it? But in the end, I hope we will all capture a picture of joy that can only be a gift from God. So let me pray, and then we're going to start working through this one part at a time. So, Lord, we all got pictures in our minds of people we want to be like. People that we think, if I could only be like that person, then I could be happy. But, God, I pray that you you help us to see through all that right now. See through all of the, I don't know, the, the things that we chase that don't really have meaning, ultimately. And in doing so, God, I pray that you show us what does have meaning. And that you lead us and guide us toward true, lasting joy. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody said, amen. amen. So if you were with us last week, you realize pretty fast, Ecclesiastes doesn't hold back much. It kind of says it like it is. If you want to compare it to Proverbs, Proverbs is like this inspirational, motivational speaker, I guess. But Solomon is more like this Listen, I've been through some things, and I got some things to share, and I'm, just, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to bluntly just tell you like it is, which I feel like a lot of Bostonians can appreciate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can appreciate that kind of thing. So as we dive right in today, again, I'm going to take all of what he says and try to condense it to one point, point. and this point is this. We all have an ache and hunger for something the world cannot give us. We all have an ache or hunger for something in this world cannot give us. If you've heard of C.S. Lewis, the famous author, he wrote this book called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he, he describes how he's found within himself this desire That it seems like nothing in the world can satisfy. It's an ache for something more. And because he couldn't find an English word to really describe that longing, that desire within him, he decided to turn to German. And he found this German word, Seinzucht. German people don't laugh at me right now, okay? Seinzucht is how I'm pronouncing it. all right? Which he describes as an inconsolable longing for that that this world cannot satisfy. You ever had a time when you're looking at something truly beautiful, but you almost feel a little bit sad? Because you feel like, well, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Or have you ever just had that feeling at all? Like there's got to be more than what's right in front of me in this world. Well, C.S. Lewis felt that too. And so he uses this word, Zainzucht, to, to describe this. This thing's not a bad longing that we have, but actually our creator has placed this within us. But the problem is when we try to satisfy that with things in this world, it's going to be like grabbing at smoke or trying to catch our own breath. We just can't do it. But just in case anybody in here is thinking, well... I'm not really sure that that, you know, is, is whatever you just said, like, is actually a thing that Zane I, Zooks, I, I actually think that I can find lasting satisfaction in this world. I just haven't found it yet. Ecclesiastes says, okay, all right, well, let me take you through King Solomon's life. And we're going to look at one enviable quality at a time and see, can this really bring about lasting satisfaction? And because Solomon was famous for his wisdom, let's start there. All right, that's our first stop. Can I gain enough knowledge and understanding to win satisfaction? So, you know how people come from around the world to the Boston area for the universities to to study, right? This is a, a mecca of knowledge here. Well, the same was for Solomon, Foreign kings, everybody came to Solomon in order to gain his wisdom because they thought maybe education will save us from our ache and get us on the road to happiness. Maybe when we find out all the whys, and when we figure out how, we can forge our way to satisfaction through medicine, technology, sheer human ingenuity. So we travel down this road toward knowledge, hoping, believing the human mind can unlock the secret to lasting satisfaction. And we line our walls with degrees from the best schools because once we find that right philosophy, ideology, morality, once we know about all the issues that are standing against human flourishing, once we figure that out, then we'll have peace. But then we come to the words of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. In Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Says this, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that was done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has placed, has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, and I learned this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more (laughs) grief What did he conclude? Well, if ignorance is bliss, then the more you know, the more grief you suffer. So is studying and knowledge bad? No, of course not. Of course not. But you should know that the more you get to know, the more you know you can't fix things in this world that are are broken. As he said, you can know all about the crooked things, the unjust things but does that mean that you can straighten them out? Just because you know about them doesn't mean you have the ability to change it. And if you know but can't change, you're left just feeling sad. I mean, how many times have we solved problems as human beings? Sheer human ingenuity has solved one problem, but in doing so, only created another And we realize this road toward knowledge alone is a source of human satisfaction (sighs) comes up short. Yep, Zane Zooks, whatever, still there, still there. All right, so our next stop, let's try something else. Can can I gain enough pleasure to win lasting satisfaction? If wisdom can't do it, let's lose our minds and have a good time. All right, let's eat, drink, like throw, throw legendary parties at Club Solomon. Let's, let's entertain every human sense that there is. Let's, let's explore all the pleasures of sex. But hey, if crazy isn't your style, just go after your dream home, your dream car, dreamlike vacation, whatever it might be. Do whatever you want to do. Recreate the Garden of Eden in your own backyard. And Solomon said, Yep, did that too. Let me tell you how that worked out for me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I didn't completely lose my head. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, sounding like the Garden of Eden, isn't it? I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned... More herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem. You guys know what a harem is? It's a bunch of women, all right? Just so you know what that is. As well, the delights of man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. And I denied myself. Nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless at chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He said, I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired wine, food, parties, projects, gold, singers, sex, the works. And I'm sure like a lot of it was great in the moment. But he asked, what did he gain, lasting gain from it? You see, pleasure fills us up now so it can remind us later how empty we truly are. Pleasure fills us up now so it can remind us later how empty we truly are. I don't have to tell you, a lot of you know that next morning feeling. When you had a great time the night before and wake up feeling completely empty and then thinking, well, I guess I'll just do that all over again today. But every day we do that feels a little less satisfying than the day before. Seinzucht, still there. All right, well, we know the American story, right? Like if education doesn't work and pleasure doesn't work, like I guess we'll grow up and get a job, right? Like what else is there? I know, can I work enough, hard enough to win lasting satisfaction? So we join the hustle, we stay up late, we accomplish goals, we make a difference, we sacrifice for the career, we get respect, we build a financial nest egg, and once we've accomplished enough, we will be satisfied, right? Well, Solomon was no slacker either. How'd that work out for him? Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. (laughs) Just the way he starts this, I'm sorry, it makes me laugh. So I hated life. (laughs) Anybody say, at your job, maybe some of you are like, I can relate. I can relate to that right now. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. to chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or Foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, even at night. Their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Yes. How's Solomon doing, guys? <laughs> See, when our hope for satisfaction rides on our work, eventually we will become miserable. <laughs> That's what he's saying here. Because if you think about it, like, like our, our mindset is if I just get one more, project, close one more deal, sign one more contract, climb one more rung in the ladder, then I'll be happy. But Solomon's like, nah, you actually just end up with more stress. And you actually end up with a lot less sleep (laughs) than you did before. But I heard somebody say the other day that when work becomes the most important thing to us, rest starts to feel like a sin. Zane still there. It's still there. And if you're honest with yourself, which of these three areas are you most likely, or have you noticed yourself most likely going toward for lasting satisfaction? You know, how would you finish this statement? I will be happy when dot, 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 dot when I finally know enough about this world that I can solve my problems, when I'm finally able to do what I want without interference, when I'm able to get the promotion, accomplish my goals, or you might add some other things to it, when, when, when so-and-so will finally just start dating me, when my marriage will finally, when, when my spouse will finally shape up, when, I don't know, like, like, how would you finish that statement? But there's another reason. He said, "Why things can't, in this world can't fulfill our deepest cravings. And you may have picked up on this already from what we have read, but why are knowledge, pleasure, work or things in this world guaranteed to fall short of lasting satisfaction? What does our blunt friend Ecclesiastes say? That even when this life dishes out great things, Death is the reminder that it can't last. Man, I know that even bringing up the word death today is about the same as trying to bring up sex in Victorian England. It is is a taboo subject today. I, I read this fascinating book by Dr. Lydia Dugdale called The Lost Art of Dying. And and she makes a statement that that sticks with me. I've shared this with you guys before. That in the last century, death came to replace sex as the ultimate unmentionable. Why? Because if we're dead set, pun intended, on discovering our lasting satisfaction in this world, death ruins the whole project. Wisdom and knowledge, they're good. But can they last? No. I imagine Solomon teaching from all of his books and his students at all these people there in his lecture hall. And all of a sudden, one day, he can't remember something quite as well as he used to. A reminder. And he even says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly and just as light is better than darkness. And the wise have eyes in their heads while fools walk in darkness. He says, don't get me wrong. Wisdom has value in this world and this life. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. So what then do I gain ultimately from being wise? He says, it can't last. And he says, work and pleasure, they're good, but they can't last either. I imagine Solomon walking the halls of his dream house and up the marble stairs to his bedroom. And one day, he's like, I'm a little winded. My knees are hurting. Where did that come from? And then he looks in the mirror and he's got a patch of gray right there. That wasn't there yesterday. All of that, a reminder that it can't last. And realizing this, Ecclesiastes says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them (laughs) to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person is wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil. And as good as the wisdom, pleasure, and work in this world can be, it cannot be the source of our lasting satisfaction because it doesn't last. And you know, I recommended last week, for anybody who wants to dig into Ecclesiastes a bit more, this book by a guy named David Gibson called Living Life Backward. And he makes a striking comment in chapter two of that book. He said that wisdom, pleasure, Work and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And Ecclesiastes' needle, the sharp point he uses to burst our bubbles, is death. It's the ultimate certainty that guarantees that what we gain here cannot last. And as depressing as that may sound. Everybody's like, this seems to be a pattern. I think this happened last week, too. But seriously, as depressing as that may sound, he's actually saying this to be liberating. Because if we do find ourselves running here in the world for, for satisfaction and that, that, that didn't work, now I'm going to go here and now I'm going to go here and now I'm going to go back over here because that didn't work again. Maybe, maybe this is better now. Like if he says, if we're running through trying to find this in the world, he says, let's just stop for a second and let's get honest and let's ask, well, maybe this world can't provide what you're looking for. Maybe it can't, because if the world's best cannot satisfy us, then we must long for something that only God can give. And if we're willing to admit that there is this longing within us, that it seems as if this world cannot satisfy, then perhaps we can take the next step and say, well, maybe there is a God outside of, of just this world who can. And you see, the reason why Ecclesiastes is laying this out is not so that it leaves us depressed. If you walk out of here depressed, like, please listen now. (laughs) I think it actually, Ecclesiastes is trying to help us get to the point of considering just this. Maybe that longing is for God. At the end of chapter 2, he closes the section Saying, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, those who don't give their heart to him, he, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth in this world, but they will just hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless and chasing after the wind. So he, he, he after focusing us on wisdom and then focusing us on pleasure and then focusing us on work, now he's like, I want you to see through all of those things to the God who gives them. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? that our search for lasting joy must see through the gifts to the one who gives. And that Zenzukt is the holy reminder that we are not made for this world. Have you again, if you've ever looked at like a beautiful mountain scene or experienced just the joy of the sunshine on your face? or eaten a really good meal, and you get to the end of that, have you ever just felt a little bit sad? Like, ah, oh, the moment's gone. That's because you know in that moment that you actually, that's a preview. That's a preview of the world you do belong to. You belong to the presence of God. Because there is so much beauty, and there's so much to be enjoyed in this world, But James said this. He says, every good and perfect gift is not from this world, but from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights and unlike this temporary world, he does not change. That the search for lasting joy is meant to lead us to the God who is lasting. But we don't go to God and seek him so that he will give us the things we think will make us happy. Right, how many times have I prayed for, God, will you help this work situation go better? God, will you help our money come together? Because God, then you'll give me the thing that I think will make me happy. God's like, nah, man, the reason why I give you good gifts is so that we will see that he is our highest joy. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. He is our highest joy. That it is in knowing him, loving him, serving him, talking to him, listening to him, a.k.a. being connected to him, that our soul's ache finds its rest. And this is exactly the story of the Apostle Paul. Right? He was a guy who, from the world's perspective, had everything. He had respect, notoriety, ambition, money, until Jesus knocked him off his high horse and melted his pride with his all-consuming love. And after losing it all but gaining Christ, Paul, from a jail cell, was able to say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. See, man, if, 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 if our hope is in stuff and in pleasure and dream houses, once those things get taken away, what do we got? Our feet are on shifting sand. But if we have Christ... If we have the very presence of God, the same God who defeated death, filling us, no one can take that from you. No one. And even when all the good stuff in the world is gone, Paul said, I've learned to be content because I've learned where lasting satisfaction is found. And that's a relationship with my God. And we can learn to know that kind of contentment too as we learn to give thanks to the giver. And this is where I want to get practical for a second because as you guys were thinking about, man, which of those roads, knowledge, pleasure, work, are you tempted to go down? Think about this. If you are somebody who you know you have a tendency to chase down the road of knowledge, like you just need to understand everything before you can feel happy, I want, one thing you may try instead is find a way to just stand in awe of the mystery of God. Right? Get get one of those because I'm assuming you like to read. Get one of those thick theology books on the glory of God and just stand in awe for a moment. Or go to that mountaintop and instead of trying to figure it all out, just give thanks for it. Or if you're the type who runs after pleasure and you always gotta have that new thing and like, you never really feel satisfied and said, stop recognize the gifts that God has already given you in the ordinary things around you and just give thanks. Or if work is where you've often traveled, you never feel like you can be content until the job is done or the promotion is in hand, what if you could just regularly take time to rest and give thanks that God is in control and that he has your life in his hands? I mean, it's amazing. That may sound so simple, but it's amazing how that trains us to begin to see the ordinary or the, thi- the gifts of God that have always been around us and to recognize that He's the one who gave it. It's not the thing. It's Him who's the source of our joy. If the world's best cannot satisfy us, then we must long for something only God can give. And as we find our lasting joy in a relationship with Jesus then we learn to enjoy life as a gift from him. And as Christians, like hopefully we get this because we understand that everything that we have, even our breath is a gift of God's grace. Because although He made us and loved us with a holy love. Man, we selfishly took his gifts and rejected him. And when we were made for him, we turned our backs on him and sought joy outside of him. And if God made us, like God could have easily taken life back from us. But instead... The amazing news of Jesus is that God took on human flesh and dwelled among us and he demonstrated his love by giving up his life to pay the penalty for our sin and he took our death to give us his life as he rose again from that grave and we live only because of his grace. We have not only been given a new chance to live now, but we've been given an eternal life that begins the day we believe in what Christ has done and confess him as Lord. And even death cannot take that away from us because the spirit of the resurrected God lives within us. And with him in us, as we learn to do life with him, we start to see that the meal in front of us we don't actually think that's going to satisfy us, but we do see it as a gift from God to give thanks to him for. And We see the sunshine on our faces, the beautiful sunrise. And we not only see it, but we see through it to the God who made it. And we see the beautiful kids, grandkids, the families, the real examples of love around us. And we give thanks to God for that because we realize it's a picture of how he loves us. You see, when we no longer need the world to satisfy us, we actually can see through the gifts of God to see the God who does. And if this world's best cannot satisfy us, then we must long for something that only God can give. So we're about to take communion together, which is celebrating the greatest gift, the one gift of grace that that actually means that we can be united with him now and with him for all eternity. And so as we prepare to take this, though, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to give us a moment of silence. And however you want to spend this moment of silence is up to you. You can use this time just to give thanks to God. Or maybe you could use this time just to say, God, like, have I been chasing after knowledge or pleasure or work or something else? I confess that to you. And help me instead see through all of that to see you. Spend this moment of silence however you want, but it's to prepare your heart and your mind before we take the Lord's Supper together. So Lord, there's no greater gift than you giving your life for us, demonstrating your love by, by laying aside your heavenly glory to become one of us and then die and give your life as a sacrifice and then rise again so that we might be united with you forever. And I pray that in this moment, as we prepare to take this meal, as we prepare to receive this gift yet again, I pray now in this moment of silence, did you speak to us, And prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name.